He retired from the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, serving 21 years. He worked patrol. He worked undercover. And the last seven years as part of their elite homicide detective bureau. He's also a private investigator, a consultant, and an author of five books. He's here to talk about a notoriously vicious and violent case that he investigated. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Calling from Idaho, we have retired Los Angeles County Sheriff's Detective Danny Smith on the phone. Danny worked in patrol. He worked undercover. He spent the last seven plus years of his career in the elite homicide detective bureau. And he is also a private investigator, a consultant, and author of the Dickie Floyd novels. Get more information about all the books. I think there's five of them. DickieFloydNovels.com. Danny, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Jay. I'm uh, happy to be on here. It's a pleasure having you, and I've been aware of you and your work for a while. We've just never been able to make this happen, and now we have. Uh, before we get really into the, the details, you were L.A. Sheriff's Department. And from what I know of them right now, everybody that's brand new starts in corrections there, correct? Yes. Uh, well, there, there are very few exceptions, but you know, you know there, there's a few... Uh, if you're very young looking, you might get recruited out of the academy to go straight into narcotics before you have any exposure. But the the bulk of all sheriff's deputies go to work the jail first, because in LA County we we have a jail system that that takes care of about twenty thousand inmates at any given time. So uh, it's quite a uh, quite a task and requires a lot of personnel. Did you have to do that? I did. I had to spend two and a half years in uh, in men's central jail the at the time it was the largest largest jail in the county and, and throughout most of the country and after uh the two and a half year stint i was sent to patrol in south central los angeles at a station called firestone well my hat's off to you because first of all the corrections part of it it takes a special person to do that i don't have the skill set and i'll be honest with you danny i don't know if i could develop it just the noise alone on top of the constant threats of violence, I, I think I would put me over the edge. You know, it's interesting, though, Jay. I, no one, well, I shouldn't say no one. Most cops don't become cops to work in custody. They, they want to be on the street. That's, that's why most of us become cops. But um, in hindsight, you know, it's a great education, and it's in a controlled environment. So I used to look at it like this. The, the guys that graduated from LAPD's academy went straight to the streets, and they still didn't know anything. Because you don't, you don't learn how to deal with crooks during the academy. You learn procedures and, and tactics, but you don't learn really how to interact with, with really bad guys until you hit the streets, unless you go to custody. And at custody, it was a controlled environment. We were dealing with the hardest core criminals and gangsters, and by the time we got to the streets— we knew a lot of the, the the people that we would interact with for the rest of our careers. 
you're absolutely right about the academy. We learned law, we learned tactics, we were learned rules and regulations, all this stuff. And when I graduated, Danny, I thought I was I was like number two in the class. I thought I was really well prepared. I thought I knew what was going on. About five minutes on the street, I realized I had no clue. Yeah, no, your your real education begins when you when you start interacting with you know the the elements that we deal with, and um, and that's why I said you know that for that and that alone, custody was a, a really great experience. And from there, you went to patrol. And by the way, I, I got to say this because I love when people tell me, hey, I'm going to go into police work and I want to be a homicide detective. I'm going to the academy. I'll be a homicide detective as soon as I graduate. And I'm saying, well, that's not quite how it works there, pal. You know, you got to, there's a lot to learn, but we all started patrol. So you guys start in corrections and then you can patrol. And that's where the, the lessons probably really multiply for you. Yeah, sure. And, and, you know, of course, depending on what jurisdiction you work, I mean, they're, where we worked in South Los Angeles, and, and I was patrol deputy. I went in the um, uh, 80s, 86 is when I went out to patrol. And through the late 80s and early 90s, you know, the, the cocaine epidemic struck the United States and murder rates soared. So it was one of the most violent times to be a, a street cop, especially in, in any major metropolitan area like Los Angeles. And it, it was busy and it was active, and, and you learned... You learn fast. Um, it, it was quite the education. That's another great point you brought up. It, it, right now, it's certainly an anti-police climate by politicians, the news media, everybody else. But back in the day, it was very violent. And we had lots of police across the United States. I mean, police, I say, law enforcement officers, sheriffs, you name it, murdered or maimed in the line of duty. And probably far more than there are today. Um, you know, I don't know the for sure the statistics on that. I, I, I did recently, I, um, when I was writing my memoir, I did a little research on just murder rates. And that period of time, the late 80s, early 90s, had, had the most murder rates of any time before or since then. Um, but I didn't actually look up to see uh, what the rates were as far as, as police officers killed in the line of duty. Yeah, it's, it's very violent back then and uh, violent now. And I thank you for your service. It's very much appreciated. Uh, you went from patrol to undercover. Uh, when you say undercover, is that meaning narcotics? No, I actually went from patrol to station detectives first. And station detectives is, is you know, just that. we every, every station, patrol station, has their own detectives. You investigate everything, all, all the crimes that are reported, uh, other than the specialized crimes like like homicide, so we'd investigate you know robberies and kidnap you know kidnapping and sexual assaults and burglaries, <laughs> etc. But then and we'd we'd investigate all the uh, drive-by shootings, the assaults with you know deadly weapon and attempted murder. But when someone is killed, the homicide bureau would come and investigate that. It's kind of an interesting setup with. The LA County Sheriff's how we how we operated that way, but um, I worked station detectives for for a couple of years, and then and then within that same bureau, the, the station detectives, I began working undercover uh, in in a role is for the crime impact team, and we did different things. We did everything from from vice investigation to narcotics investigation and uh, surveillance, things of that nature. And then you graduated to the homicide detective job. 
Well, I actually uh, took one more step before I got the homicide, and it is a step up. I went from station detectives to what's called detective division, and I, I um, landed a spot at the uh, Metro Detail Special Investigations Bureau, and that was a really exciting job, and it, it too, was undercover. Um, we investigated murder for hire, kidnap for ransom, uh, threats on public officials. Uh, we did uh, fugitive work. It was a it was a really um, uh, specialized and highly active investigative position. Uh, not, no, we're going to take a short there. break. We are talking with Danny Smith. He is a retired L.A. County Sheriff's detective. He's also an author of five books, the Dickie Floyd novels. We're going to talk about his homicide detective experience, in particular, a very vicious, violent case. We'll return on the Law Enforcement Day Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If you enjoy the Law Enforcement Today podcast, do me a big favor. Tell a friend. And if you're able, if you've got a few moments, leave an honest review and rating. I am Meg Marie O'Rourke from Harmony with Food. Do you ever wonder what foods you should or should not be consuming based on your own unique needs? At Harmony with Food, we are now able to determine exactly what foods we should or should not be consuming through advanced testing. Test, don't guess is the motto at Harmony with Food's BioUnique Boutique program. It has never been easier than now to determine what food, drinks, and supplements you need for your individualized needs. Head over to harmonywithfood.com and click on the testing tab. This portion of the Law Enforcement Today radio show is brought to you in part by Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Everyone's welcome at the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page, where you'll find fun, informative, and enjoyable posts daily. Purebred, mixed breeds, rescues, we love them all. Be sure to like the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Return conversation with Danny Smith, retired L.A. County Sheriff's Detective. He did 21 years. He's a private detective. He is our state private investigator detective. It's not like the Mannix movies or Rockford Files. I can tell you that. He's a consultant. He's author of the Dickie Floyd novels. You can get more information about all of his books online at DickieFloydNovels.com. Before we went to break, Danny, we're talking about your career progression from working in corrections to patrol on the street to uh, station detectives. And then you got elevated to homicide detective. And the reason I bring that up is we see these shows on television about homicide detectives. And a lot of people don't realize how good they are at police work. They've done everything from soup to nuts and they are well experienced by the time they get there. It's very rare, very rare indeed where someone comes in and they're very young and they've got almost no street experience. You did a great job, and, and I appreciate your efforts along the way. Thank you, Jay. And, and yes, it is. Homicide's a very specialized uh, investigative unit, and typically in, in most departments throughout the country, it's the cream of the crop that, that rise to that level. The most you know hard hardworking, dedicated investigators because – that's that's what it takes to to investigate murder. You know, there's there's it's a there's a tremendous amount of of stress. Uh, the job takes a tremendous toll on you, and you have to be in it because you absolutely love being a detective, and because you want to solve the toughest cases. And uh, it takes a special type of uh, cop to do that job. Absolutely. I've talked with, I've had Rod Demery on the show from Investigating Discovery Channel. He's retired. I think uh, it's Baton Rouge. Uh, Joe Kenda, some other ones that 
they don't tell you. They don't. Most cops I know won't blow their own horns. They won't tell you what it took, and they won't tell you the toll that being on scenes, being on scenes of people who have been murdered, is one of the hardest things for me to deal with. There's still people that I remember, um, and quite honestly, it. You know, I, I can say this without shame. I'm not the same person I was when I was 20, and it's understandable. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's interesting, too, because, uh, you know, there's things that, that people have no clue about uh, just because they, you wouldn't know unless someone told you. But, you know, as a homicide detective, you, you're, you're working all the time. You might think you're going to take a few days vacation and go somewhere with your wife, but you live and die by your, your informants, your 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 victims, families, and, and loved ones. I mean, if, if someone calls because they found something out about a murder, you know, you take that call, and it doesn't matter what time of the day or night it is. Or if a if a gang detective calls and says, hey, we've got, you know, Flacco from La Puente in jail, and, and I think you were interested in him on that drive-by murder, you don't say, well, you know, that's cool, but uh, I'm off until Tuesday. I'll get back to you. You uh, kiss the wife goodbye, you put on a suit, and you drive to wherever that person's being detained, and you interview him. Otherwise, you don't dare ever ask another gang cop to try to find, you know, Flacco or any other gangster that you want to talk right. to. So it's, it's, it's a job that, that it, it, it requires so much uh, personal sacrifice, you know. And then, of course, like you said, the, the toll of just the deaths that stack up and, and the tragic ones uh, those are the ones that stay with you forever, and and it, it does take a lot out of a guy to do that job. One of the things I believe a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about policing, and I blame Hollywood for that. To be honest with you, is that right? You know, the unsolved cases, the cases we couldn't solve. Quite often, we knew who did it, or we had a strong suspicion who did. It. We just couldn't get enough probable cause to take them to court, and, and those ones really bother people. Other ones. You said were so heinous. Even if you solved it, they bother you, and they will for your life. There is a case uh, in Baltimore about a young girl who was—I think she was ten or eleven at the time—was abducted, was sexually assaulted, and was murdered. And it was my crew, my squad, that handled. It. I was off that day, but the homicide detectives—one was dying of cancer, and they could never charge someone with this. They knew who did it. And on his deathbed, he was looking for clues on how he could solve this. And this was, I, I can't tell you, almost 30 years later. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and of course, the more innocent the victim, the, the more the case bothers you. So, of course, children uh, take the greatest toll. But, but you know, uh, you, you mentioned something about this, this poor detective dying and still worried about that case. You know, people don't realize you retire and you still have these cases that, that stay with you and that you become involved with. And just over the last few months, I've been interacting with the parole board on a case, uh, this guy that, that beat his estranged girlfriend to death. And uh, then he beats another man to death while he's in prison. They don't even charge him for that. And, and they're trying to, you know, parole him. And I'm writing letters to the parole board and interacting with the family. And I've been retired for 17 years, Jay. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know? And you're still doing it. Um, you're, still, but, you're still a beat cop. You're still doing the job. Yeah. I mean, you never, you might hang up your gun and badge, but I mean, it's, it's, it's not just a job. It's, it's what has defined you and you're never going to close the door on people that ask. And, and the family members of, of murder victims 
oftentimes, you know, homicide detectives end up with this bond that, that that doesn't just go away. So 20 years later, when they call you up and say, hey, they're trying to parole this guy. Actually, it was 25 years ago that uh, the case happened. But, you know, almost 25 years ago, uh, and the and the victim family gets gets in touch with me through social media, and um, actually found me through my website, and contacted me and said, "Hey, they're going to try to to let this guy out on parole." And and so I've been writing letters to the parole board and doing what I can, doing my part. But you know, those are the things that you just don't. The average person would would never know, have a clue about. You also are dealing with a parole board for a state who doesn't seem to really have logic in their processes of when they release people. Well, that's true. And then worse than that, L.A. County has this new prosecutor. Um, I'm sure that you know, I know of them. Yeah. heard about Gascon. Yeah. But this, this, this guy is so anti-cop and, and pro-criminal that he is no longer allowing his prosecutors to go to these parole hearings and and stand for the victims. So normally a, a process like this, like this this guy that's up for a parole, there would be a prosecutor who takes the file and goes to that parole hearing and says, This is why you shouldn't be paroled. And Gascon, he's he's not allowing the prosecutors to do that. The the politics and I I will let people know very upfront, you listen to the show for a while, you know I don't talk about partisan politics. And most cops I know don't either. We are not big fans of either side. However, when someone has a job to do that is protecting the innocent, we expect them to do their job. And when they don't do their job, we are some of the first to hold them accountable. And sometimes we can use colorful language when we describe people like Gascon. Uh, this is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We're talking with Danny Smith. Danny is a retired L.A. County Sheriff's Detective last seven plus years of career in homicide he's now a novelist amongst other things the dickie floyd novels go online to dickiefloydnovels.com get more information we return we're talk about a particularly violent vicious heinous case that he investigated don't go anywhere we'll be right back there's only one official facebook page what you do you do a search on facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show, click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today radio show. Be sure to click like and follow. What is the Haunting or Not podcast? It's a free podcast that takes a different approach to ghost stories, hauntings, and cases of demonic forces. Husband and wife podcast hosts mix comedy, facts, and a healthy dose of police evidence skepticism to help you decide. Are these hauntings or not? Helping you decide what's real and what is fake or an overhyped exaggeration. From world-famous cases to lesser-known reports, they talk about them all in the Haunting or Not podcast, available for free on most podcast platforms. Or do a Google search for Haunting or Not podcast. If you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. 
Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T Radio Show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. Return conversation with Danny Smith. Danny is retired L.A. County Sheriff's Detective, worked seven-plus years, the end of his career in her Homicide Detective Bureau. Uh, he is also an author, author of the Dickie Floyd novels. Go online to DickieFloydNovels.com. And I think, was it five books you've written, Danny? Uh, no, I have actually seven novels published and a uh, memoir of it that was just now published that um, is, of course, a, uh, a, a true true story. So You make me sound like I am a really non-achiever, a slacker. Seven novels. <laughs> Look, when I retired from police work, I thought I would write the great American novel or open an Irish pub. And it turns out, I'm glad I didn't do either one because they both require a lot of work. And one is, uh, you know, you'd have to be married to it. I, and I don't want to do that. So you were writing these books. Did you do it for therapy reasons or entertainment or both? Well, um, man, you just uh, hit the bullseye with that question. That's the, the $1,000 question or $10,000 question. I actually started writing because when I left the job, I, I was diagnosed with chronic PTSD. And my shrink that they sent me to uh, was was impressed with the uh, the writing that I had submitted prior to our first meeting. There there was a, a list of questions asking about you know what type of experiences led me to that point, and I typed up about fourteen pages of a response, and 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 this shrink looked at me and said, "Hey, you should write for a living." Well, I'd never considered writing for a living. You know, I I kind of that wasn't really what mattered to me at that point. But after I retired and while I was going through a process, I had to have a couple of surgeries. I did start writing, and and um, you know, the shrink said, "Hey, it'd be therapeutic," and it turned out he was right. Uh, it was very therapeutic for me to write, and and so for the the years that followed. I wrote fiction, and it's taken me this long to write my memoir because, and and I, I couldn't have written it any earlier, to be honest, Jay. Because even 17 years after I retired, as I wrote this, I mean, man, it's been a flood of emotions, uh, and it's brought back, you know, some of the nightmares and everything else, and it and it's been a difficult process. But again, it is very therapeutic to write, and I and I not only enjoy it for that that reason but um it it just it it's become something that that i almost have to do like it's it's kind of hard to explain but i i it's like i bleed through these pages sometimes i get it i've written a few articles for law enforcement you go to letradioshow.com look for my name you'll find them and uh, i've written a few under pseudonyms where i didn't use my name for for obvious reasons one of the things, and by the way, I'm an older guy, a little bit older than you probably. I was raised and I really got fascinated with police work by reading books, which became TV shows by Joseph Wambaugh. Were you influenced by him at all? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, um, it, it's, it's, that's funny. I mean, what cop didn't read Joseph Wambaugh when you're, when you're our generation, um, yours or mine? But um, I was reading Wambaugh before I got in the department. And it's interesting, you know, I mean, I'm a huge, huge fan of his, and I've communicated with him a few times since I started writing. But, you know, uh, something that's really interesting, and, and I don't know if other cops have, have ever had this experience, but 
when I read his books before I was a cop, I found them entertaining. I've gone back and read some of his books since I retired, and they have a, a completely different effect oh, yeah. on me, especially The Onion Field. Oh, The Onion Field read, killed me. Yeah, when I, well, when I read it earlier, you know, when I was a young cop or just before I became a cop, I mean, it definitely, uh, I found it, you know, interesting, enthralling, tragic. But reading it now, I just read it again a year or two ago. And, man, it was tough to get through because of all those experiences that I now burden me. And I'm reading this book, and, man, it was tough. It, it, it was a completely different read for me after, after having been through that experience. I highly recommend everybody read his novels. And, and uh, uh, underlying most of them is, you know, you, you come in this profession with a, a real idealistic attitude. You want to help. You want to serve. You want to do everything else. And you become so psychologically scarred from seeing what you see that it can have profoundly negative impacts on you. And one of those cases that you're involved in, the William Dolphus Whiteside case, is one of those. Yeah, it's one of the cases I talk about quite a bit in my memoir, and, and I eventually plan to, to write a true crime book on just that case because it's because it's that fascinating and compelling and tragic. But William Whiteside was a 61-year-old Native American who had never harmed anyone in his life. Uh, the guy lived a fairly simple, organized life. He worked as a in, on the, in the maintenance department of a local hospital in Lancaster, California. And he was 61 years old, uh, separated from his wife. In, in all essence, they were divorced, but they didn't get divorced for uh, insurance purposes for her. And, and But they were, they were not going to be getting back together. So he meets this 35-year-old Valerie Martin. And uh, when she gets a job working in the same department that he's working in, and um, they end up hitting it off. And, you know, um, I think that, a lot of people will say, okay, well, 61 and 35. So there's some underlying things going on there. And one of those things is that Valerie Martin is kind of down on her luck. She needs a place to stay, et cetera. And she moves in with him in his modest little uh, mobile home in a, in a little mobile home park. And, you know, life is, is okay for both of them. You know, he, he's got companionship. She's got a place to stay. And everything's going along just great until her little son gets out of juvenile hall and he's 16 years old and he's a skinhead and, uh, and he's a tweaker and pretty soon all of his tweaker skinhead friends start hanging around and then staying at the, at the, at the trailer and Whiteside is, is fed up with it. And of course, Valerie starts using meth again now that, you know, all these tweakers are hanging around and, um, ultimately, they devise a plan to get rid of Whiteside because he's he's kind of in the way of, of what they're wanting to do. And he's kind of uh, encouraging her to get rid of the kid and, and his friends. So they decide instead to get rid of him, and, and they, they plan to kill him. And Valerie is, is, uh, is the headmaster of this plan, and she calls him one night when he gets off work at midnight and says, hey, can you go pick up out there? And she sends him to this desert location. And so he agrees. He drives out there to pick up little, you know, the 16-year-old skinhead. And he is with his 27-year-old skinhead friend and a 14-year-old. And they jump him and they 
beat him, crack his head open, drag him out of his car, stuff him in his trunk. They'd start driving away. They're driving to a more remote location in the desert. And they hear him trying to get out of the trunk, and they stop, and they beat him some more. And by the way, they use sticks that they refer to as uh, the N-word beaters. And so they use these sticks, and they're beating him because, let me back up a second, they actually refer to William Whiteside as the N-word because, of course, he's not pure white. He's not white. So any, people, anyone that's to not be white honest with you, Danny, they, they make no sense to me. I find them revolting, uh, uh, disgusting. I've had my dealings with them before. I've never understood them. When we return to our conversation with Danny Smith, and we're talking more about this case, it gets worse. You can listen to the show as a podcast for free. That's right, 100% free. Just go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, you'll find us there. Or do a Google search for a Law Enforcement Today podcast. Be sure to subscribe today. Remember, it's free. This is the Law Enforcement Today show. We have a short break. We'll be right back. One of the most frequent questions we see is, where can I find great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, we do. So we decided to start our own podcast network on Law Enforcement Today. That's right. You can find top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and our free app. Go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you'll find the LET Podcast Network. We'll be adding more podcasts from first responders and more. Again, to find the Law Enforcement Today Podcast Network, go to letradioshow.com and click on the Be Heard in our menu. Or download our free app today at letradioshow.com. Turn conversation with Danny Smith. Danny is retired L.A. County Sheriff's Detective, a homicide detective bureau, last seven years of career. He is a private investigator. He's a consultant and author of the Dickie Floyd novels. Go online to DickieFloydNovels.com. Get more information about him and his books. For the break, Danny, you're talking about the abduction. You're They're beating William Dolphus Whiteside. And this is the son of the woman he took in as a companion and or girlfriend, for lack of better words. Yeah, and she sent him out to to have this meeting out in the remote desert. So, um, as heinous as that as that is, I mean that's that's the fact. And um, so they're they're driving along. They're going to a more remote area. They stop. They beat him some more. Uh, Ray Ray, you know the sixteen year old. He, he remembers that his mom said, make sure you get the ATM card because she had the code. So they take the ATM card and, um, and close the trunk and they drive out to this, uh, this desolate area, call the mom and she comes out with gasoline. So right now you have lying in wait, robbery, kidnap, torture. And when Valerie arrives with the gasoline, the boys pour the gasoline on the car and set it on fire with uh, William Whiteside in the trunk of his own car. Now, the autopsy shows that, that he was not dead when they set the car on fire. So he was 
curled up in a ball in the in the darkest recess of that trunk, and uh, and he died a, a horrible, horrible, unspeakable death. That's horrible to hear. I know people have asked you when you. And if you're like me, you don't even like telling people these stories because one of the questions they'll ask is, how can someone do that? And I don't have an answer. I I don't know. Evil. That's how they, just pure evil, Jay. And and that's, you know, I, I, one of the things on my blog, I I write some of this stuff on my blog and, and most of it's in my memoir, but you know, one of the things I wrote about was was when I interviewed Valerie Martin and when I got her to confess to what she had done. You know, I used some of those those tactics that that are most uh, useful in a in a good interrogation. And um, and I kept telling her, you know, that she she wasn't a bad gal. You know, that she had made some mistakes. And at one point, I was holding her hand and uh, and and getting her to to talk about this this deal. And of course, she was lying through most of it, but um, but it was just it was just the most bizarre thing because I'm I'm trying to show this compassion and, and that I understand you know the situation she's got herself into. But all I'm thinking during the whole thing is is my God, you evil, you know. Um, it was just horrific, and and the outcome of the case. Uh, long story short, you know, the 14 year old pled to a, a deal. Uh, he had a limited amount of time in prison, which he would have had anyway because of his age. And he testified against the others and, and told her, told the whole story, which is how you know we knew all the details. Uh, the 16-year-old was tried as an adult, and he got life without the possibility of parole, as did the 27-year-old. And um, and then Valerie, and she was she was given the death penalty, so she is uh, what they consider a condemned prisoner with the California Department of Corrections, um, although they'll never actually execute her, but uh, I think it was a deserving sentence nonetheless. And, and a rare row, how many years? A woman. Oh, yeah, that case was in 2000, 2000 or 2001, uh, 2000, 2001 or two, somewhere in there. So, um, she, she's been on death row for, for 20 years approximately. And, uh, you know, she'll be she'll be there forever, which is that's fine too. You know, I, I don't necessarily want to see her executed. I have to be honest. There's yeah. there's people I put on death row that I'd love to see executed, but I think that we all, you know, there's there's something different about you know when it's a woman, and that's why there's very few women that are ever given the death penalty. You know, but um, I, I just don't ever want her to be on the street again, and she deserves to spend her life in prison. I hear for you. Sure. I agree 100%. I want to backtrack. One of the most powerful things you said, Danny, is the investigation where you're doing the interrogation, you have to be friendly. You almost have to act like you understand and you're compassionate and you're their friend and you find a person and what they did to be absolutely revolting and goes against all of your nature. That creates a conflict for a lot of people internally. Yeah, it's nothing like the movies, you know, where <clears throat> you're slamming books and yelling and screaming. Um, you know, uh, cops figured out, you know, several generations ago that that, that rarely elicits a confession um, and is more likely actually to, to bring out a false confession. So, you know, we don't we don't use those tactics and um, and and to, to get most people know better than to confess to murder. So to get someone to actually 
confess even partially takes a very crafty approach to the to the interview and um and and oftentimes yeah it's it's role playing because you have to put yourself in a place where you're you're not you're not letting your emotions about this man that was burned alive come into play as you're looking this woman in the eyes and 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 telling her that she's not a bad gal you know that she's made some mistakes and people wonder why sometimes we're not the most social people in the world right exactly i I think it's because we've seen the dark side of what people do to each other for too long that you know there was a time danny when i was much younger i was concerned about whether people liked me or not you know now i'm more concerned whether i like them or not i wrote a in, in one of my novels uh i wrote about one of my characters who uh He's having a you know trouble. He's reflecting on trouble that he'd had with his ex-wife and how you know she was kind of a social um, butterfly and and uh, wanted him to go to you know the the business cocktail party that, that that she would attend and and he was just reflecting on this about how can he go there and relate to anybody in the room you know and that that, that there's no doubt someone would say oh so you're a, a, a homicide detective and and then they'd say something as stupid as you actually see dead people, yeah. you know, and, 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 and in this novel, you know, of course I'm, I'm, I'm just channeling thoughts that I've had in the past where in the novel, his, his thought process is, yeah, you know, I'll tell you what, Skip, why don't you grab me another cocktail and I'll tell you about the little girl who was beaten to death by her stepdad, you know, how would that be? Yeah. Because it's so atrocious. Like why we don't want to have a conversation with people that have no understanding of what type of life we live. And that, and that's not a good thing, Jay. I mean, no. be truthful about it. It, it creates it's, a really closed social circle and eventually winds up where it's just us. And then we're in the worst company of all because then we it's just us and our thoughts. And I, I, before we run out of time, I want to talk about your books. You've got, would you say, seven of them so far? Seven novels and a uh, memoir. You got eight written pieces here. I can barely write a letter. I got to send a card to my daughter for her birthday. And it's late, <laughs> so I'm I'm the worst excuse. Your your website is dickiefloydnovels.com. That's d i c k i e floyd f l o y d novels.com. Why the name Dickie Floyd? Well, so the uh, the first series of books, the first six books I have published, the two main characters in the books are Dickie and Floyd. And they're two detectives, L.A. detectives, and, and, and they're loosely based on a couple of characters I know pretty well. <laughs> yeah. And I'll leave it at that. But, um, but that's just kind of how it started. And then, you know, the, uh, it's easier to say the murder, MurderMemo.com uh, it takes you to the same place, just MurderMemo.com. And that's where my blog is and all the information about my books. But the the memoir that that I, I just released is is probably as much as I hope people read my novels because they're entertaining. I, I really hope that a lot of cops and 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 I hope everyone reads my memoir because Jay, I I really am honest in that memoir and I talk about um, you know the dark places that that I went and I think that you know, I, I actually I'll say I know a lot of cops never admit to some of the things I talk about in this book. And, and I, I think that uh, it would behoove more of us to be, to, to get to a point where we can be open and discuss 
our our darkest um, I agree with you places. 100% Danny I want to thank you so much for your service and really appreciate being us on the show all very very much appreciated thank you real quick Jay the book the memoir is called Nothing Left to Prove by Danny R. Smith great name great title because guess what like you I got nothing left to prove thanks so much man appreciate it thanks Jay I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.